Philippians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23. Verse 20, actually how we finished up last time, the doxology there is a bridge to, to these verses. And if you read ahead, you might be thinking, what could be said about this? And yet, I think you're going to see there, there is some tremendous encouragement in this this final greeting and blessing that Paul sends to the Philippians church. But before we get there, before we get to this final message in this great letter, I just want to marvel for a minute how providential and helpful God has been in his word. I mean, before we ever got to 2020, we had the book of Ecclesiastes to prepare us for for this year, right? I mean, we were salted over and over with the phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life outside of the garden is cursed. It's, we were told to expect that. We, we were reminded in that book that there's a time for everything, time for every matter under the sun, a time to, to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to heal, a time to kill time to tear down and a time to, to build. And yet God is the one who controls the clock on, on all of those. We were equipped to deal with uh, political wickedness and injustice and claims of, of racism through the book of Ecclesiastes. Did you know that? Ecclesiastes told us injustice, even in high places, will always be present. It's part of the fall. So don't put your hope in human philosophies or other means to, to fix a fallen world. Only the Lord can do that, and he promised that he will. And we were also told what to do while we're waiting on him to fulfill that, that promise. That's how the book ends. We're to fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of, of man. And so we're to do as believers. We're, we're to believe the gospel. We're to be a biblical church. That's, that's our that's our whole duty, because there are things that are crooked that cannot be made straight, and the only answer is the gospel. And then the Philippians, the book of Philippians came along and gave us the right internal perspective, the right external perspective. We live in a fallen world, and, and then the right internal perspective. We're, we're to rejoice in the Lord regardless of what, what happens around us. The Philippians taught us to live as Christ and to die as gain. We, we learned the attitude of Christ, the example of Paul, the, the model of the Philippian church. And we heard the definition of, of what a true Christian is, which, which is going to be needed to, to an increasing degree as the end draws near. It's someone who worships in the spirit, boasts in the work of Christ alone, and puts no confidence in the flesh. We learned that from Paul's pedigree. And more recently... We learned how to be spiritually steady and to prepare us for, for life. We're to stand firm in the Lord. We're to strive for unity in the church. We're to rejoice in the Lord and know the Lord is near. And we have no reason to be anxious. We, we have access to God in prayer and the promise of peace whenever we, we, we go to him. And then the secret of contentment before a very different Thanksgiving, the theology of giving after that. And, and today this book ends in a very encouraging way, by charting the unique privileges that we have as saints of Christ. We know where the world is headed. We know how we're to live as it goes there. But did you know that there are exclusive blessings that are given to believers, to Christians, as we live in the world and as we live, live for Christ? 
I mean, the Bible is clear. God loves the, the whole world. But, but the Bible is also clear. He has a special love for his elect, for those who are gathered together in Christ. Just like a man would have kind affections for his neighbor, he would have a special love for his own children. You wouldn't expect a, a father to, to, to love his, the, the, the child next door the same way that he loved his, his own. And God has a particular love for, for believers. And the door to the family of God stands open for, for any to come through through faith in Christ and repentance toward God. But, but those who are, who are in Christ, you this morning, if you're a believer, you're, you're the apple of, of God's eye. You're, you're the, the ones that Jesus purchased with his own blood. And so Paul wraps up this epistle with a friendly farewell to, to the harassed Philippians by outlining the privileges of God's, of God's saints. And in the four verses, he, he provides us four encouraging privileges, we'll call them, of saints in Christ. He talks about the saints' purpose in verse 20. That's the doxology. He mentions the saints' brotherhood in verse 21 in, 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 in his greetings. And, and then he mentions the saints' fellowship in further greetings, verse 22. And then he ends with the saints' grace in Christ. Let's, let's look at the first one that he gives us here. The first encouraging privilege is the saints' purpose. Isn't it encouraging to know that regardless of what happens around you, you have a personal association with the God of heaven. And you have a purpose to live for him. Look at you at verse 20. It says, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so after finishing his thank you note, Paul ends with a final outburst of praise here in verse 20. The truths about God supplying all of their needs uh, according to to his riches in glory, leads Paul to worship God and, and to praise him. And, and as he does, Paul mentions here our association with God and, and our amplification of him as, as saints. I mean, we saw last week that true theology leads to triumphant doxology, which is what Paul is doing here. I mean, doxology, praise, is always appropriate, the appropriate response to, to God. But I want you to notice something very significant, a very significant shift that Paul makes here in this verse. Back in verse 19, he says, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. And in verse 20, he says, and now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As he's praising him, he says, he's not only my God, but he's our God. He's yours as well. And he mentions the primary, primary privilege that every saint possesses. He mentions our association with God. God is no longer an enemy, but, but he says he's, he's our father. Can you remember what it was like to be unsure of where you stood with, with God? I do, with someone coming to Christ at, in my early 20s. I mean, maybe he was distant to you. Maybe he wasn't even a thought. I mean, maybe you were raised in a Christian home and, and it was just kind of the air that, that you breathed. But, but, but then you became particularly aware that there was a God and, and more importantly that, that, that God was particularly aware of you, and including your sin. Maybe he was terrifying to you as you were aware of, of the judgment that, that was coming. And you think of the change that's now because of you're in Christ. He 
He's a daily friend. He's a, he's a kind master. No longer do you, do you have to look into his face and, and, and fear lightning bolts and, and judgment. You, you see a, a friendly smile. He's no longer far away. He's near. That's what Paul's saying here. He's our God and, and Father. And 1 John chapter 3 says that this new relationship is a display of the Father's love toward you. Look at John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it does not know Him or did not know Him. If you've ever been, uh, begin to get discouraged by what's taking place around you or what's, what's going on in your life, remember you're, you're a child of God. You have a heavenly Father. And there's nothing that could ever change that. Every time I think about God being uh, my father, I, I, just, I just hear my pastor telling the story over and over about, about whenever he surrendered to the ministry, people, people doubted him because of who his earthly father was. His dad was a drunkard and he was a wicked man. He, 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 he beat his wife and, and his children and he would get big tears in his eyes and he would say, they only knew my earthly father. They didn't know I had a different one now. I have a heavenly father. And so do you if you're a saint. You may not even know who your dad is, earthly, but you know who your heavenly father is. And because of that association, our primary purpose is the amplification of him. View it at verse 20 again. Now to our God and father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says everything that is done is for the glory of God, specifically the glory of the father. And what comes to your mind whenever you hear the glory of God. I mean, we sing to God be the glory, great things he has done. We, we quote the catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him uh, forever. We, we, we love the, the solas, the soli deo gloria, the glory of God. What does that mean? The glory of God is the demonstration of God's attributes. It's the it's his unique person put on display. There is a God. Men know that. The glory of God is, is, is who God is displayed, revealed. Years ago, John Piper said, the glory of God is God's holiness gone public. I've never forgotten that. In Isaiah 6, when you get a glimpse of the throne room, it, it says his glory filled all uh, around the Lord. Look at Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his road filled the temple. And above him stood the, the seraphim, and each had six wings, and two covered his face, and two covered his feet, and, and with the two he flew. But notice what they say. That's what they did. What do they say in God's presence? And one called to another and said, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And all the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You would expect after three holies for them to say, and the whole earth is filled with his holiness. That would be the natural thing. They don't say that. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. And God's glory is his holiness, his uniqueness put on display for all to see. The whole the whole earth is full with the fingerprints of God. 
He's put on display in three primary areas. In creation, in Christ, and then finally in the consummated kingdom. I mean, God displays who he is in the created world. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? I mean, you know that in Psalm 19, 1, 1 through 4. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse declares his, his handiwork. It puts it on display. I mean, the primary purpose for all of creation is to provide a stage for God to display his goodness and, and his power. The expanse shows his greatness. Have you ever looked out into the, into the stars and you see one that's distant and then you look a little farther, squint a little bit more, and you see one that's even farther beyond that? Do you know that there are millions and millions of them farther than you can even see? God's great. The intricate detail shows his carefulness. The beauty, his goodness, the, the, the provision, his care. I mean, we sing, Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder... Consider all thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, and it goes on. And then we say, and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Even his power and his nature are, are displayed, according to Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You notice these these words about displaying, declaring, perceiving, being understood. God's understood partially, dimly through creation. No person who has ever lived can say, I didn't know there was a God based upon creation. Because God reveals himself to every man, including you this morning. And not only that, God displays who he is through Christ. God goes public with who he is through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also made the world and he is the radiance of his glory the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power if you want to know what god is like look to jesus christ he's the perfect revelation of god listen he is God's glory in human form. And salvation even happens to the praise of the glory of his grace, so that the manifold grace of God might be displayed for all creations. Ephesians 3.21, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And finally, God will display who he is in the final consummation of all things. Habakkuk chapter 2 tells us, In the millennial kingdom, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the knowledge of who God is, his glory, as the waters cover the sea. And Revelation 21, 23 says, In the new heavens and the new earth, the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. Heaven will be filled with the knowledge of God. God will be displayed. All of heaven and earth will be filled with the revelation of who God is, his glory, and we'll spend all eternity knowing him. And did you know that the Bible says that's exactly why you've been created before all that happens? We were created to put who God is on display. Not just say or sing to God be the glory. But to live in such a way that we display who God is to the angels in the church and to the unbelieving world outside of the church. I'm sure you know Isaiah 43.7. 
Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I formed, who I have made. Three times he talks about you were made for this purpose. Created for this purpose. You know the echo of that in the New Testament is Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus created unto good works which, which he foreordained or prepared beforehand. That's what it means when the Bible says that you were created for God's glory. It just simply means you're put on the earth to magnify God, to reveal his attributes, his holiness, to shine light on him. How do you do that as a human being? Well, you copy the attributes you can and you, and you tell others of the ones that you can't. I mean, there are certain things that, that we can imitate and that we can display. As humans, like love and joy and faithfulness, there's other things that, that, that we can't. So we tell people about those. It, God's omniscience, his, his sovereign power... So living for the glory of God means that we live in such a way that reveals to the world who God is by doing and telling. Let me get really practical. The way you treat your husband or wife, the Bible says, discloses who God is or it obscures him. It images him or it blinds others to him. I mean, when you sacrifice for her instead of live for yourself, when you submit to him instead of go your own way, both show God to others. And when you treat your employees, for example, with kindness and provide for them, you image God's care for us. When, when you unyieldingly declare that, that there's right and wrong, you image God's justice when you bring the ROD to the backside of your children you image God's justice as well as I can testify my mother did that wonderfully and when you forgive someone who has sinned against you you image God's willingness to pardon you you give people an imperfect outline of of who God's like what God's like and then you tell them about the other things that 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 you can't and and all of those things are many more why you were created that's why you're here You're made for him, to make much of him, which is what makes sin so utterly sinful because sin nature at its core wants to make much of us. We live for ourselves. We make much of ourselves. We give give no honor to God. We're unthankful. We refuse to acknowledge him and his law. That's why judgment will come, not just on you stepping over one of God's laws, but, but failing to do, not just commission, but omission. And in verse 20, Paul extends this glory and praise into eternity. Verse 20 again. Now to our God and Father, there's the association. Be glory, there's the the amplification. Watch this, forever and ever. Amen. There will be eternal praise to God forever and ever. Literally into the ages of ages. That's what heaven will be. An endless period of time to make much of God, to know God to learn more of him, to enjoy him forever. Confession has it right. Walter Hansen said there's no better expression of this than in the familiar hymn. When we've been there 10,000 years, right, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. If you don't enjoy God, you're not going to enjoy heaven because it's all about him. And Paul ends this with an amen, 
which means that when this letter was read aloud to the congregation, the congregation would then respond to this doxology with the same word, Amen. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, Amen. Amen, the congregation would would say. It means, yes, so shall it be. Yes, we affirm that God will fulfill all of his promises in Christ and we will give him glory forever and ever. Amen. And until we get there, we get a little snippet of that, a little piece of that through the saints that walk with us. Let me show you the second encouraging privilege. It's the saints' brotherhood. Look at you at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. It's encouraging to know that you have a personal association with God. It's also encouraging to know that you have individual relationships with other believers. You're not alone, is what this verse says. And Paul mentions here, dear saints and dedicated brothers in this one verse. Now when you hear the term saint, you likely think of one of two things. You likely think of a super spiritual person who lives far above everybody else, or, or you, you think of someone dead, like in the Catholic Church. In Roman Catholic dogma, saints are, are thought to, have, to be extraordinary Christians who lived levels far above the, the average person. And if you're a Catholic, you pray to the saints, you're close to God, or you light candles. You know, the candles that, that, are in, that are in churches, are those candles are, are reflections of prayers, like the Buddhist prayer flags. Have you seen the in Mount Everest, the multicolored flags that are waving in the wind, there's writing on those. They're prayers. So the Buddhists believe that as long as that prayer flag says waving in the wind, it's sending its prayers off to Never Never Land or wherever it is. Well, the Catholics have the same idea with, with the, the candles. You light a candle at the, at, the fit, at the foot of the feet of a saint and you pray. And as long as that candle stays, stays lit, the prayer continues perpetually before the, before the saints. John MacArthur said a little boy in his church was asked what a saint was. He said they're multicolored people who block the sunlight and live in windows. (laughs) Now the Bible says that you're all saints this morning in Christ Jesus. You're not any more holy than anyone else, and you obviously are not canonized in the Catholic Church. But you're a saint if you know Jesus Christ. It was Paul's favorite word to use for Christians. He used it over 60 times in his epistles. And almost every time he used it, he used it for an average, ordinary Christian. You want to be encouraged? He calls the Corinthians saints. That's how he starts the letter, to the Corinthian church. And then 16 chapters of issue after issue. And when Paul uses the term saint... He doesn't want you to think of Catholicism. He wants you to think of the Old Testament. He's echoing the Old Testament that described Israel as God's holy people, a people set apart as in Exodus 19.6. And through Christ, all believers now enjoy that same relationship. You are a holy people of God. Being a saint doesn't have anything to do with your behavior or morality. It's a position as God's people. Set apart from the world by grace. You belong to God. You're his possession. You're the holy ones because of that relationship to God in Christ Jesus. And notice Paul says, greet 
every saint in Philippi. Here's one place that if you have an NIV, the translation is, is wrong. It says, greet all the saints. This literally is singular. It's purposely singular. Greet every saint. Now, Paul began addressing in, uh, the, the, the saints in Philippians chapter 1. You remember how this, this whole letter begins? To all the saints in Christ Jesus and to the overseers and the deacons. To all the saints, the whole congregation. And now he ends the letter by saying, greet every individual one of them. Every saint. And the command is given to those overseers who, who, who would do the greeting. The same leaders that he mentions to the overseers and, and the deacons. When they were to read this publicly, they were to greet each member on behalf of Paul. Paul is not satisfied with the leaders just saying to the whole church from the pulpit, Paul greets you. He's not satisfied with that. He wants them to communicate to each person. Paul sends his greeting to you as a saint. Paul sends his greeting to you as a saint. And Paul sends his greeting to you as a saint. And in order to emphasize the significance of the of the brotherhood, the bond of, of relationship that, that, that's there. Saints are saints together in Christ. And when I came to the Lord, I lost all my so-called friends. I had all kinds of friends whenever I had a big boat and a cooler full of beer. But they were gone whenever I came to Jesus. But I gained a true spiritual family, a fellowship of saints then. I would call on my, on my church family before my own family at times. They were close. My family would have been there if I'd have called on them. But my church family I lived with, I did life with. And that's how you feel if you're truly part of a, of a local church. And those relationships are privileges that belong to you as saints. And those relationships are, are eternal. I mean, we sing, will the, will the circle be unbroken? But the only thing that will be unbroken, the only thing that will be everlasting is the church. And I hope your, your family is in heaven. I hope mine is there. But your earthly family may not be in heaven. It may even be divided on earth because of the gospel. Jesus said that the gospel could bring a sword and division between father, mother, brother, sister. Even your marriage is for earth. It's not eternal. But the relationships that you have with the saints continue forever and ever and ever and ever. And some of them will be of particular value. If you would at verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the relationship that's, that's there, the bond of sainthood. And then he singles some out. The brothers who are with me greet you. Leaders, greet every saint from me, from Paul. And the brothers who are with me greet, greet you. Paul not only asks for his uh, greetings to be given, but he sends greetings from, from brethren who are with him. I mean, there are dear saints in your local church, and then there are dedicated brothers or sisters in your personal life. And in the very next verse, Paul will, will say he sends greetings from all the saints in Rome, the, the whole ball of wax, the whole, the whole group. So this is not talking about the church where he's in where he's at, where he's in prison, he singles out a specific group or a smaller group within the, the larger circle of all the saints. And we remember where these brothers are at, where they're sending greetings from. They're, they're sending greetings from 
beside the Apostle Paul in prison with him. And just like Peter, James, and John were, were three of the twelve, and they had close fellowship with the Lord, there are also people in your Christian life, saints, that you'll have close fellowship with. They'll, they'll be spiritual co-workers, and they'll be of particular value to you. The Lord will use them in your life. And even as I say that, there's probably some names or people that come to your mind. People who have assisted you through spiritual difficulty, who, who walk with you and draw in close. You can call on them. They're the first people that you text whenever something goes wrong. And you're closer to your church family than, than, than others, but you'll be even closer to, to some who are with you. And the Lord will use them mightily in your life. Isn't it encouraging to know that you have brothers in arms who, who are right next to you? Sisters who will confront you, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Spiritual orthopedists who will reset the bone whenever it gets out of joint, like in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Burden bearers who, whenever they're, they're, they walk so close to you, they can see when your knees begin to buckle before they ever do, and they throw a shoulder up under the burden that, that you're carrying. Paul had a smaller circle like that, but he leaves them unnamed. And you have to go to the Colossians, the book of Colossians, for, for a list of who Paul means. And it's a formidable band of brothers here. I mean, we know that, that, that the brothers that, that, that are sending greetings uh, included Timothy and Epaphroditus because Paul's already mentioned them in, in the Philippian letter. But the letter to the Colossians, written during the same imprisonment, gives a long list of people who are with Paul. Colossians 4. 7 through 14. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities, Paul said. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. Listen to how Paul, when he names them, how he describes these, these, these individuals. And I could do the same thing for people that, that have been in my life. And with him, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark... Mark was with him, the cousin of Barnabas. In Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayers. Think of someone who prays for you constantly. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And also Demas. Philemon, written during the same imprisonment, echoes the list of names. That's how we can confirm it. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so does Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke and my fellow workers, others in the list. Now, minus Demas, that's a platoon that I would go to battle with any time. <laughs> and if you've not cultivated a, a small group of close confidence then you're missing out on one of the greatest gifts that God provides amongst the saints. If you're not part of a local church, if you're not part of one that's real and genuine, then, then you're missing out. You're, you're going to struggle and flounder in your Christian life. But even within the church, to have a group of people like this, it's one of the blessings that you have as being a saint. But there's more. 
The third encouraging privilege is the saints' fellowship in, in all places and in high palaces, Paul says. Look if you would at verse 22. Now he goes wider again. All the saints greet you. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And then he goes narrow again, especially those of Caesar's household. It's encouraging to know that you have a personal association with God, the God of heaven. It's encouraging to know that you have individual relationships with, with other believers. You're not going at it alone. And it's encouraging to know that you're also part of something bigger, much bigger than you could ever fathom. Paul draws a circle wider and he says, all the saints in Rome greet you. Now we know there was, there was a group of believers in Rome before Paul got there. Because he talks about some rival evangelists back in chapter 1 and verse, verse 15. I mean, the gospel had reached Rome before Paul ever arrived. And, and yet it spread farther once he got there. And that was meant to encourage the Philippians. I mean, this is the imperial capital. All the saints in Rome greet you. I'm adding Rome because it's clearly where Paul is. Let me be like saying, all the saints in Washington, D.C. greet you. Can it be? Are there really believers there? Yeah, just like they are in Rome. Doesn't it encourage you to find out that God has his people somewhere you never thought was possible? I mean, don't sell God short. Don't be like Elijah. I am the only one left, Lord. And God will have to say to you, no, there are 7,000 that have never bowed the knee to Baal. They're mine. And God will have believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Um, believers are everywhere. In Saudi Arabia and in the Kremlin. And you and I get the privilege of gathering them in, which is what the Apostle Paul is doing. And while these Roman Christians are not named, there was a whole host of people who named Christ in Rome. And Paul is saying to the Philippians the same thing that the Lord said to him in Acts 18 when he talked about Corinth. Do not fear, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city. Paul says there's many people in Rome. And so whenever you feel alone or you feel like you're the only one standing for the truth or you're on the mission field and you think you're, you're only picking up gleanings, always remember, remember God's people are far greater in number than you ever imagined. And yet there's one group of Roman Christians that the apostle singles out. Verse 22, all the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. These are low believers in high places. A great theologian, Garth Brooks, saying something different. That's not what Paul is saying here. These are low believers in high places. And those who belong to Caesar's household consisted of slaves and freedmen of, of the emperor. We know that because of the word household. That's who he's talking about. Now, what comes to your mind whenever you, you hear the word slave has been tainted by a lot of modern ideas, many of which are not even historical. But slaves in Romans time, Roman times were very different. They were managers of properties and enterprises. They were, they were administrators even of government responsibilities. They served as civil servants uh, under imperial direction. They, they were part of Caesar's cabinet, if you will. And if you look at some of the names in Romans 16, you, you'll find out some likely candidates. 
were really high up. The household of Narcissus in Romans 16.11, likely Tiberius Claudius Narcissus, the, the influential man under Emperor Claudius who lived from 41 to 54 A.D., people from his household. Paul also mentions the, the household of Aristobulus in, in Romans 16.10. Many argue that's the grandson of Herod the Great who lived in Rome, slaves of his household, people that were connected to him. So what? I mean, why is Paul naming these men? Why is he singling out imperial slaves? It's to encourage the the Philippians and us. He wants the Philippians to know that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. There were believers before he got there, but the gospel went further after he got there. And as he's been chained to the Praetorian Guard, he's been witnessing to them. And... um, Someone said, as I was listening this past week, the only thing worse than being chained to the Praetorian Guard is if you're a Praetorian Guard chained to the Apostle Paul. (laughs) And you're an unbeliever. You're not getting away. And he wants the Philippians to know that many of them didn't get away. They didn't get away from the Lord. And that when you're transformed by the gospel, it changes everything. These men who are members of Caesar's household are now members of God's household. And they went from bearing the moniker of Caesar to the mark of a saint. Walter Hansen said the implicit message is imperial power cannot stop the power of the gospel. Even while Paul in Roman prison and believers in Philippi are suffering under imperial authorities, the gospel is claiming the allegiance of imperial agents. Paul is saying to them the gospel is penetrating even to the very heart of the Roman leadership. And how encouraging that should be to you whenever you feel like all the powers of the secular government are stacked against us, and they are in a lot of ways. Listen, God cares who's in power, but it's inconsequential according, uh, based on his power. It doesn't stop his power at all, whoever's in power. Or his gospel's advance. Nothing will stop Christ from building his church. Always remember God has his own and in high places and they're doing his bidding. And if he needs them, he can raise up an Esther. The fourth privilege. Encouraging privilege that comes as a saint's grace. Isn't it encouraging to know that God's grace never ceases? If you would, verse 23. Paul ends this wonderful letter with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ literally be with your spirit. Be with your spirit. And Paul mentions our union, the saints' union with Christ and grace that comes from Christ. He ends by reminding them and us that being in Christ is the basis for being a saint. It's not Catholicism or your deeds. It's of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your union with him on any other requirement or prerequisite. MacArthur said the kind of union, that kind of union with Christ is unique to Christianity. I mean, all other religions, you follow someone's teaching. But we are in a living union with Jesus Christ. We're alive in him, spiritually alive. And that's what sets you apart from the world and to to God. And once you're in him... 
nothing can remove you. I mean, do you realize what would have to take place if you were to be, if you were able to lose your salvation? I mean, you would have to die again spiritually. You've been made alive in Christ. You would have to be unmade as a new creation. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. The, the Holy Spirit who indwells you would, would have to be removed. You would have to be removed from the spiritual body of Christ. You were baptized in, into Him. You would have to have your name erased from the Lamb's Book of Life, which was written by God's own hand. You would have to have had the, the blood of Christ rinsed from your sin, removed from your sins, the cancellation of debt that was nailed to the cross would have to be reinstated to your account. Uh, God's wrath that was absorbed by Christ on the cross would have to be rekindled, and the Father would have punished the Son for no reason. You would have have to say that, that God got your election long, wrong, making him a liar, which is impossible. And you would have to have the gift of faith removed and you would return to being an unbeliever. You would have to lose the mind of Christ. You would have to be lost by Jesus. You would have to be plucked from the Father's hand, and no man plucks anyone from the Father's hand. He declares himself. That's how secure you are in Christ as a saint. And Paul tells us how God ensures that perseverance of the saints. Look, if you would again at verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the union and yet there's grace. Not only is there a union with Christ that makes you a saint to begin with, but there is grace that continues throughout the Christian life. That's what he's referencing here. I mean, Paul is ending this letter the same way that it began. He says to all the saints, I'm writing to all the saints. In the end, he says, greet every saint. And you remember something else he starts with about grace? You remember Philippians 1.6? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by or until the day of Christ Jesus. He starts the letter with a reminder that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day that we see him. And now he ends the letter by reminding you he performs it the same way he started it. He began it by grace. He continues it by grace. And that grace is granted to your spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He's already told us how long that will happen. The Christian life is a spiritual life. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We die outwardly daily, but inwardly we're renewed through grace in our spirits. That's what your spirit means here. Grace be with your spirit. The inner man. You need grace in your inner man. The location of the grace, the target of that grace that continues. You don't just get grace to get saved. You, you get grace your entire Christian life, and that comes through your union with Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging? And there's nothing that it can ever break that. And the source of grace is Christ. And that grace comes through the preaching of the Word and the Gospel, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the fellowship of the saints. The saints' purpose is the glory of God. Saints' brotherhood, greet the brethren and they greet you. Saints' fellowship, saints in Rome and in high places, and the saints' union and the grace that continues to flow, the grace of Christ in your spirit. What privileges we have as saints of God. But the real question that you have to answer 
is are you part of that group? Because God makes a very clear line of demarcation of those who are his and those who who aren't. Those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside. Have you ever repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? Have you been made alive spiritually? If you haven't, then you're not a saint. And you don't have any of these benefits today. And if you're a Christian and you're listening to this list and you, you see some of the holes, you're, you're failing to claim some of your, your blessings. <laughs> and maybe the Lord wants you to do something about that. Do, do you live for God's glory or for yourself? Do you have a band of brothers or sisters that, who help you walk and, and challenge you to go harder for, for the Lord? Do you, is your life centered in the church? Or are you just part of it? You just attend? You just come? Do you have genuine fellowship with other people in the body? If any of those questions hit home, then the Lord says, I have more for you. You're missing out. Now to God, our God, be and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we would say, Amen. Chew by your heads. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God has prepared my own soul for these times. Not just these times, but all times. I am so thankful for the book of Philippians and the encouragement that you end with. Thank you, Lord, that we have been made saints, set apart, holy people for you. Help us to live, to make much of you in everything that we do, in the church and outside of the church. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone watching or here that has never bowed the knee to Jesus, confessed their sin and been, been changed, that, that today they would do that very thing and be instantly transmitted out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. And I ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.